Welcome to this Texas Sports Nation podcast. I'm John McLean. I can be reached at McLean underscore on underscore NFL. I'm Greg Rajan. I can be reached at Greg Rajan, R-A-J-A-N on Twitter. Good morning, Greg. How are you? I'm good, sir. Um, I missed a week last week. I was off and then the Texans went out and hired a coach. I mean, very inconsiderate of them to do that when I was off, but oh well. They usually don't think of me when they do those things. Well, they did consult. They asked me, they said, is Greg going to be available to handle all our stuff? And I said, now he's taking off any way you could delay it. And they got back to me and said, sorry. (laughs) That's all right. We've got some more Texan stuff to talk about this week, even though they finally have a coach in place, albeit an unconventional choice given the search. John, there was a report yesterday on Tuesday from – Jeremy Fowler of ESPN that Deshaun Watson was evaluating the Vikings and Buccaneers as possible trade destinations. Do you see either of those places as landing spots for him? First of all, uh, I would have no idea anybody would know what Watson's doing. He's preparing for his deposition in which Tony Busby can have him for 42 hours. And uh, he may wish at that time that he had reached settlements with his 22 accusers. And wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall for that when he has to sit still over several days and Busby's told people that he will use every minute with Deshaun Watson. Now, Minnesota makes no sense whatsoever. Watson may love an opportunity to be traded to the Vikings. New head coach Kevin Connell's an offensive coordinator. Likes to throw the ball a lot, comes from the Rams, even though Sean McVay called plays for the Rams. But they got two receivers. They got a running back. They got, of all the bad teams, Greg, and I don't count Las Vegas being bad. They just have a new coach. But of the bad teams, the Vikings are best prepared to win. But they got this one big wart, and that's Kirk Cousins going into the last year of his contract with a monstrous cap figure. And Deshaun Watson's going to make $35 million in 2022. There's no way they're going to have both of them on their roster, and there's no way the Texans are interested in Kirk Cousins. Now, as far as the Buccaneers, two weeks ago, a friend of mine has covered the team forever, asked me about Watson's situation in case the Bucs were interested, and I explained everything, which we talk about and write about here all the time especially the need to settle those 22 civil suits. And I asked him, I said, well, the Bucks take Antonio Brown. Would they take Watson anyway and worry about all the baggage later? He told me he doubted it. So I said, well, get in line. Because if he reaches settlements, there's going to be a lot of teams interested. And I had explained the no trade clause. Problem with Buccaneers, you know, they're picking at the bottom of the first round of the teams that might be interested, Greg, the one that showed the most interest last year who has the highest pick is Carolina, sixth overall. Now, it's taken a lot more than one first-round pick, but if they could get the Panthers' first two picks this year, that would give them quite a haul at the top of the first round, top of the second round, top of the third round, and they have an extra three, and then get the rest of the compensation over the next two drafts. So I don't put any stock whatsoever in Minnesota, even though perhaps Watson told his agent, his agent's leaking it. He wants us to check out uh, teams like Minnesota and Tampa Bay. At what point do you think 
Watson is going to blink here when it comes to his no trade clause and maybe accept a trade just to get back on the field. Since he controls it and his agent, David Mulligetta, did a great job getting that no trade clause and that new $156 million extension he signed in 2020. And at the time, Texas, sure, we'll give it to you. Nobody even considered that, and it was brilliant. So he gets to dictate where he's going. Philadelphia, before the lawsuits piled up, made an offer. And at the time, they had two ones and two twos. Watson told no, he would only go to Miami. Now, we don't know with a new coach in Miami and Mike McDaniel, plus the fact that you have Stephen Ross, who could lose a couple of number one picks or be forced to sell the team if indeed he's found guilty of uh, offering Brian Flores $100,000 to tank games, then that situation would not be good unless he wanted to go there because it was in South Florida. Now, Denver, if he wanted to go to a good situation where he could make the biggest difference instantaneously, it would be the Broncos. They have a really good defense. They have a really good running game. But, you know, their picks, they didn't make the playoffs, so their picks are kind of in the middle of the pack. And there was talk they they got enough talent on their roster. There was speculation they could trade one of their best offensive and one of their best defensive players. I don't see that happening. I think the Texans and Nick Casario, he knows taking a good player from another team, it might be two, another two years or three years before they're a contender again. And he may want those picks, but we don't know because he hasn't been through this before as a general manager. People seem to think that he's sitting around doing nothing. The thing is, Greg, he'd trade him tomorrow if he could. But you got the lawsuits and you got the no trade clause. Lovey Smith has told national media he wants to get this handled as soon as possible. So does Casario. What does he think he's doing? Just sitting around twiddling his thumbs? No, they would love for it to be ASAP, but you have those two impediments to any deal. Now, the earliest he could be traded, March 16th, start of the league year, that's not happening. And I think when they do, It'll be closer to the draft, but if he doesn't have those 22 suits settled, it's going to be a trouble. And then I wondered, too, what if he could get 18 and it was only four? Would another team take him under those circumstances? John, the Texans have another player who might be a trade chip this offseason. And uh, entertain, entertain this scenario for me. I was watching the Super Bowl on Sunday. Saw Cincinnati struggle with protecting Joe Burrow. Ultimately, it cost him at the end. The last play of the game, Aaron Donald broke through, ended the Bengals' hopes. Would the Bengals be interested in trading for Laramie Tunsil? He's got two years left on his contract, so he wouldn't be a rental. He's a fixed cost. Do you think the Texans could maybe pry, say, the Bengals' first-round pick, which would be 31st overall, and another late-round pick for Laramie Tunsil? Well, I think they would try to get higher than that, considering he's a Pro Bowl left tackle who's really good pass protector. He's not a very good run blocker. But, you know, they wouldn't be making that deal for him in Cincinnati unless he could be a great pass protector. Now, he was injured in the fifth game. People thought he could have come back last year. David Culley thought he could come back, but he didn't. So I know if David Culley had been back, he would have wanted him traded. But, 
Pep Hamilton is running the offense. He has a big say. Lovey Smith's the new head coach. He has a big say. If they told Nick Casario, get him out of here, we'll play Titus Howard at left tackle and a player like if they drop down out of the third pick, somebody else at right tackle, or we want to keep Laramie Tunsil at left tackle, and we want to keep Titus Howard back at right tackle, and then we want to take Iki Aquanu from North Carolina State who can play guard or tackle but is a butt kicker in the running game and a really good pass protector. You wouldn't have to take him third. Now, if Evan Neal went first overall and then Aiden Hutchinson went second and you're picking third, Aquanu's stock's going up, and that's the kind of player they need. Now, if they trade Dunsell, they're going to need a tackle. And I just don't see Jacksonville using that first pick on Evan Neal, an offensive tackle. It is rare. Now, when the Rams did it with Orlando Pace, he he was clearly one of the top players in the country for years, and it wasn't that big a surprise, and he ended up anchoring the offensive line for the greatest show on turf and going into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But I feel feel strongly that they got to take Neal or Quanu, and which one, of course, would depend on who's available and what they do in the line. Personally, I would trade Tunsil, and I would see if there was somebody picking higher than the Bengals with the number one pick that would be interested in him. That's a good point. And, you know, speaking of drafting tackles that high, I mean, you have obviously Orlando pays a Hall of Famer, but you also have cases like Eric Fisher, Jake Long, guys that were taken first overall that they just didn't live up to the building. Billing. It's very hard at that position, you know, to come in and have an impact right away. Wanted to mention another, a former Texan to you who was kind of in the news this week. There's a national report about Rick Smith being a fit for the Jaguars front office, possibly as a football czar. Is that a scenario you see happening with Trent Balky being retained there as the general manager? Trent Balky was involved in everything of the coaching search, and he is really tight with Shad Khan, the owner, and his son, Tony Khan. And they knew that certain coaches, for whatever reason, would not interview because they didn't want to work with Trent Balky. There's like people wouldn't interview with the Texans. Greg, it's just like when general manager candidates were considered by the Texans. Several wouldn't interview because they didn't want to work with Jack Easterby. So they hired Nick Casario. Now, if I'm Trent Bakke, do I want Rick Smith coming into that organization and everybody talking about, number one, he's pulling the strings. Number two, he's a real general manager. Number three, he's going to take my job. And if they were to force Balky to have him in that scenario, then that would be a recipe for disaster. As soon as Bill O'Brien got here in 2014, he started doing things he could to try to get control of personnel over Rick Smith, and he never could because Rick Smith had it in his contract. And it wasn't until Rick resigned after the 2017 season and O'Brien was very influential getting Brian Gain hired. Then he was influential getting him fired. So he got control of personnel. So he might be being considered, but if they hired him, while I think he'd do a good job, if indeed he was a general manager, but not in that role, 
with Trent Baalke underneath him because you're just looking at possible problems. That's a very good point. John, I wanted to circle back to the Hall of Fame vote last week uh, with you. Obviously, five modern-era candidates elected. Andre Johnson was not one of them. You did have one player with fringe Texans ties elected in Tony Baselli, the longtime tackle for the Jaguars. Also, Leroy Butler, the Packers safety. Sam Mills, the linebacker for the Saints and Panthers. Richard Seymour, the uh, Patriots defensive tackle. And Bryant Young, the 49ers defensive tackle. A little bit of a surprise, you know, where the modern era inductee, electees, I'm sorry. And then Cliff Branch, the former Raider, the late Raiders receiver, who's a Houston native. Dick Vermeil was voted in as a coach. And then Art McNally as a official. Are you surprised Andre Johnson made it as far as he did? And how surprised were you that he didn't get elected on the first ballot? Well, he did, he made the cut from 15 to 10, and that was good. And I never expected him to get in on the first year. I thought DeMarcus Ware was a lot because he's a great pass rusher for a long time for two teams, primarily the Cowboys. But it's obvious the 49-member committee, and remember, 40 of them can vote yes, and if nine vote no, it keeps somebody from moving to the next round or being uh, being inducted. And so um, – Thing about Andre, I feel really good about his chances next year, even though Joe Thomas and Darrell Revis are first-time eligible players. And then there's DeMarcus Ware. The committee decided to take some people who'd been waiting. Sam Mills, who I'm borderline on as a Hall of Famer, he was in his last year of modern eligibility. I had no problem with Richard Seymour. He's only the second member of the Patriot Dynasty's defense to be inducted along with Ty Law and Bryant Young, who was very underrated, great tackle for a long time, is only the third member of the 49ers defense to make it after Ronnie Lott and uh, Fred Dean. And so I thought it was imperative that we get some guys in there who who were deserving. And um, a lot of people wondered about Leroy Butler, and I told a story to our committee that Bill Parcells told me when he was there to introduce Curtis Martin, he said, you guys are considering these safeties, and they couldn't hold Leroy Butler's jock. That guy was great. And he went on and on and on. And if Bill Parcells feels that strongly about an opponent, because they all feel strongly about their players, that is impressive to me. And I told that story over the last couple of years when Butler was uh, eligible. And I was glad to see him get in, and I didn't hesitate in wondering if he was worthy. But, yes, he was, and hopefully Andre Johnson will get in in his second year of eligibility. John, only seven receivers have been voted in on the first ballot. Is there something that's developed with that position to where it's become difficult to become a first ballot electee to the Hall of Fame? I didn't think Calvin Johnson deserved it on the first ballot. Now, the way that the voting is done, when you have 15 finalists, then we vote uh, to eliminate five. Then they have an accounting firm calculate it and come back, and they tell us the last 10. Then we have to vote down to five. They calculate. Then they tell us who the five are. Then we vote yes or no on the last five. When it gets to the last five, Greg, I vote yes every time. I don't think it's fair. It's like you're holding their feet over the fire. And I've seen two or three people that got to the last five and didn't make it. And to me, that's just crushing. 
Now, so Calvin Johnson got there, and I voted yes. And the reason is all of them have such great numbers in an era that is set up for quarterbacks and receivers. And a lot of times you wonder, okay, back when the rules were different and you could hit a receiver all over the field and the cornerbacks were bigger and stronger, they could pad their forearms and hit them in the head as they were coming across the middle, hit them in the knees, was 60 catches and 900 yards more impressive than 90 catches and 1,300 yards. And today, all of them have such gaudy statistics. That's why in my presentation for Andre Johnson, I didn't mention much about stats except his total stats, except when his stats compared to Jerry Rice and Marvin Harrison, and they were the great, and they were better than any other Hall of Fame receivers. But nobody's ever said, well, let's don't put any receivers in there. Let's wait two or three years. Michael Irvin had three Super Bowl rings and took him a third year. Uh, Terrell Owens took a third year. Chris Carter took two or three years. So it doesn't bother me that they don't get in on the first ballot unless they're Jerry Rice or Randy Moss. It's well said. Um, I want to finish with one, one other topic, John. It's the third week of February. I know usually this time of year you're planning your, your annual trip to spring training. Obviously, there's no spring training this year with the MLB lockout. We don't know when it's going to start, if it's going to start. Um, as a baseball fan, I mean, you've been an Astros fan since the franchise's inception. How frustrated are you with this situation where, you know, they, they just can't seem to get out of their own way when it comes to making a deal? Greg, I, I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I understand labor agreements. And I read a great story by Hall of Fame baseball writer Jason Stark that was in The Athletic this week of five things baseball could learn about football. And every item that's being debated and argued about in this lockout by the owners and the players is about money and not about making a game better. And he gave all these examples. He talked with experts about things baseball could do, not changing to be football, but things baseball used to do. And he said, not back in the old days, but back like in 2005. And and go in there and argue about things that would make it better, shorter. You know, don't start it as late. Uh, have your graded players in the game when they're decided. He said, can you imagine pulling Joe Burrow in the fourth quarter like they pull starters after six innings? Can you imagine pulling Matthew Stafford for the backup uh, before the last drive and bringing in uh, somebody else like baseball does. And it was just a fascinating story. And I hadn't really thought about the issues. I mean, I read them, but everyone is economic. And how does that benefit the fan? And I'll tell you who I feel bad for, Greg, and I've gone to spring training probably 30 times as a fan, is the people in the little towns. Now, if you're – the Red Sox and you're the Twins and you're in Fort Myers, they'll survive. Tampa will survive without the Yankees. But Dunedin, Florida, which is really hard to get to, Dunedin's got the Blue Jays. I've been there. They depend so heavily on that. Uh, Clearwater for the Phillies, Bradenton for the Pirates, the little towns. Now, West Palm Beach, it wouldn't. it's not having a problem without the Astros. But a lot of them do, Lakeland for the Tigers. And I feel bad for the people 
that are volunteers, the retirees that work at stadiums, and people that make money off the stadiums. And and the one of the best places for me is in Jupiter, where the Cardinals are. The ballpark is right across the street in the middle of town, and there's hotels, restaurants, and bars just across the street. And it's so much fun to go there and watch the Cardinals host the Astros and see how much fun those Cardinals fans have and how it benefits the area around the ballpark, not to mention the tax money. That's what bothers me the most. They will play baseball at some point, and they'll push back to start a regular season, and they'll have a couple of weeks of spring training. But as a baseball fan, like every baseball fan, I hate it when they get bogged down in labor negotiations and every baseball owner wishes it could be like football where they have 10-year agreements, not five. I'm John McLean. You can reach me at McLean underscore on underscore NFL. I'm Greg Rogan. You can reach me at Greg Rogan, R-A-J-A-N on Twitter. Thank you guys for listening, reading, writing. Greg, thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to doing this again next week. 